A warm welcome back to Kingdom 101, and especially to those who are listening in to our SoundCloud. We want to welcome you too. After three years of Kingdom 101 and 72 sessions, we have come to the end of Matthew chapter 9. Hallelujah. And so immediately we're going to read the text and then we will pray. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Father, we want to thank you for scriptures. Lord, you never leave us alone, Lord. You have written these down by the Holy Spirit to guide us and to teach us. And so I pray, Lord, may eyes open to see, ears open to hear, and hearts be open to receive. Be with me, Lord, and be with everyone listening in. And we give glory to Jesus in his mighty name we pray. Amen. Let's start with an introduction, and let me give you an overview of what we are going through of this passage first. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. You know, if you look at this first verse in verse 35, it's a summary statement of Jesus going around the cities and the villages and teaching their synagogues. If it looks familiar to you, this is because this is not the first time you're reading this. Way back in Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 to 25, Matthew already recorded this, that Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease among the people. So you see in Matthew 4, he records this. He closes this one little subsection in 35 with almost exactly the same words. And in a way, you can look at these two like, Two little two bookends that sandwich a teaching. And in between, you have Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus declares, there's a declaration of the kingdom of God. And he teaches his disciple. We know this as the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. After that, and we've been journeying through Matthew chapters 8 and 9. And we see 10 miracles, we know the discipleship footnotes, and here Jesus was demonstrating the authority of the kingdom. At first, he declares the authority. After that, he demonstrates the authority. And prior to this, he teaches the disciple, and now he trains the disciples along the way. But it doesn't end there. This passage that we're exploring tonight it provides a transition to the next phase and it will link up with Matthew chapter 10 onwards where we will see Jesus delegates the authority of the kingdom and it doesn't end there. He tasks the disciples with assignments and things that they have to do. So if you look at this very broad overview, let me repeat it again. There's a declaration and a teaching. There's a demonstration and a training. And there's a delegation and a tasking. And so this evening, we will focus on the verses 36 to 38 in this teaching. Let's go to Matthew chapter 9, verses 36, the very first part. But when he saw the multitudes, 
Matthew records that Jesus looks at the multitudes, he looks at the crowds. Now, who are these multitudes? Who are the people within these groups? We now know, after our study of chapter 8 and chapter 9, they included both the Jew as well as the Gentile. It wasn't just the Jewish people. We know that in that region of Galilee, there were also Gentiles amongst them. So the group is a mixed group. Not just the people of God, but also those considered outside of the people of God, the Gentiles. The multitudes will also include both the rich and the poor, right? In our teaching, we have seen it's not just those who have no money, but those who with some means, like Jairus, they also come to Jesus. They are part of the crowd. They are also the reputed as well as the nameless, meaning to say there are all kinds of people in the multitude. Now, in this group also, they are not just people in the synagogues, because the verse before tells us that Jesus was teaching in the synagogues, but also in the cities and the villages, in the marketplace and also in the homes. Jesus was not stuck in church, as it were. Right? He was not stuck in the synagogues. He went out into the fields, into the marketplaces, and he saw the multitudes. Now, when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. And these three words, moved with compassion, is actually translated from one Greek word. The Greek word comes from a root word that means bowels. It's very interesting, huh? Bowels right there in your stomach, the lower part of the stomach, your intestines, as it were. And meaning to say that when someone is moved with compassion, there's an emotion that stirs deep within. Jesus did not just look at the people and go, oh, so poor thing, these people. No, he saw the multitudes and something snapped within him. Emotionally, he was deeply moved. He was deeply affected, right down to the core. You can use an English term when we say it is gut-wrenching, right? Something just stirs within you. Don't know if you've felt something like that before, right? But it's, it's just something that is there you can't control. It just comes out. Now, this is not the only mention by Matthew. Let me quote you some verses where Jesus was moved with compassion and Matthew records this. Matthew chapter 14, verse 14, for example. Again, once more, Jesus went out, saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them, and he healed the sick. Almost the exact words again. Uh, Matthew chapter 15, verse 32. Now, Jesus called his disciples to himself, and he said, I have compassion on the multitude. Why? Because they have continued with me three days. They have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them hungry. Now, you know this story, right? Lest they faint on the way. So, Jesus had compassion on them uh, for their physical needs even. That he didn't want to send them away hungry. Matthew chapter 18, verse 27. This is the parable uh, of the master and the servant. And the master of that servant was moved with compassion. Why? Because the, the servant was begging for mercy, begging for forgiveness. And so the master was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Matthew chapter 20, verse 34. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes. Again, the healing of another account of, of the blind man. And immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. I want you to see that this moving with compassion, this gut-wrenching emotion that goes with it, it's not just pitying someone. It's not just feeling sorry for someone. It's, it's a compassion that moved Jesus to act. 
in our Akipa's awakening language, we would say that Jesus, when he saw and he was made aware, he didn't remain apathetic. Right? He wasn't like, ah, I, okay, so I know this and I, I don't care. I, I botch up, you know. I, I don't feel anything for these people. He was moved with compassion and that compassion moved him to act. And so the second question we ask then is, so he saw something. He was moved by what he saw. But what moved Jesus specifically? Matthew records, because the multitudes, they were weary and they were scattered. Weary and scattered, these are the two words that Matthew used to describe. Let's look at the word weary first. This word from the original text uh, is a combination of two words. One is, the first word is out, and the second word is loose, L-O-O-S-E, to lose out. Not to lose out, but to lose out. I suppose a picture would be, if someone was in control of his life or the situation, you would say that he would have everything held together correctly, right? And so the opposite of someone holding everything together would be someone letting everything hang out or everything fall apart. And so it, it's all loosed out and it's falling all over the place. And that's why uh, it, they're, they're faint, they're exhausted, they're just tired because they're just, they can't make sense of life. It describes their exhaustion, their weariness of their body as well as of their mind. The other word scattered comes from a word that means um, to cast or to throw or to disperse or to, to scatter. And the idea is that this person is cast aside. He's thrown one side or he's thrown down either by the circumstances of life or he's pressed down by other people or he may be cast aside and we use this word marginalized to describe someone like that where he's not in the core of society but he's in the fringe at the fringes where he's marginalized, pushed to one side. The word also gives an, an understanding of someone being thrown out, thrown down, thrown aside repeatedly. This is not a one-time thing. It is an ongoing thing. Jesus saw that the multitudes, they were weary and they were scattered. Now, if you want a better understanding, let me give you some other translations. In the King James Version, it says, they fainted, they were scattered abroad, dispersed all over the place. In the English Standard Version, they were harassed and they were helpless. Does it give you a better idea? Uh, in the NASB, the New American Standard, uh, they were distressed and they were dispirited. The New Living Translation, they were confused and they were helpless. In the Message Bible, they were confused and they were aimless. The Amplified Bible, they were bewildered, harassed, distressed, dejected, helpless. And in the Expanded Version, they were exhausted by their troubles and their long, aimless wanderings and had thrown themselves to the ground in an utterly helpless, prostrate condition. Do you have a better idea now? Do you have a better picture? These guys were flat out. These guys were like so cast down, they don't know what to do. They were so confused, they were so aimless. Does it describe someone you know? Have you come across people like that? And they can be outside of the church and they can also be within the church. There are people who are just down and out. And you can say those who are outside the church, they do not know Jesus. Of course, you know, life is full of challenges. 
They can't make sense. And that's why they need to know Jesus. They need to know and they must hear the gospel of the kingdom. But for those who are Christians, they might also be burdened. And they could be burdened by a legalistic understanding of what church might be. They could be burdened by a certain religiosity that you've been made to do certain things uh, over and over and over again. And after a while, they're just so tired and they're just so burned out. Or maybe they're just so busy serving week after week after week. And, and although they have things to do, they appear helpless and aimless and don't even know where they're going. Do you know someone like that? Jesus looked at the multitudes. He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and they were scattered. And Matthew described it with this one line. They were like sheep having no shepherd. They were like sheep having no shepherd. And whenever you look at this word shepherd in the Bible, it is a picture of leadership. It is about someone standing there, leading the sheep in and leading the sheep out. There's a role of a shepherd to look after these people. And all through Scripture, you will see God appointing leaders with this line, to shepherd His people. These leaders are expected to look after the people in the way God Himself would shepherd them. Again, give you some examples. And then Moses spoke to the Lord saying, in Numbers chapter 27, verse 15, 16, and 17. Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation. Moses knew that his time was coming to an end. He needed to look for someone else. And he's saying, God, will you look for this one person, this one man that you will set over the congregation, verse 17, who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep who have no shepherd. And very soon after that, God selects Joshua. And you know, Joshua, his name actually means Jehovah saves. It's a derivative. And later on, Jesus' name would mean Yeshua. And Joshua was like a type of the Christ. And if Joshua is appointed to be as a shepherd that will lead the people in and out, can you see that the Jews who would understand their scripture will have an idea of Jesus as a shepherd leading them in and also leading them out? In the Old Testament, there's this prophet called Micaiah, and he prophesies against Saul. Now, Saul didn't like Micaiah at all. Huh? Saul preferred the other prophets who would prophesy, thus says the Lord, good things about Saul. Do you like prophets like that? We all love prophets like that, right? Huh? And then Jehoshaphat said, are you sure that's all? Don't we have one more prophet? And he says, yeah, there's one more. His name is Micaiah. I don't like him because he always says bad things about me. And Jehoshaphat says, no, no, you cannot be like that. If he's a prophet, then you must let him speak. And so he comes up in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 17, and Micaiah boldly says, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. Now, can you imagine if Saul was the king? I beg your pardon. It is supposed to be Ahab. If Ahab is supposed to be the king, can you imagine the indictment that's spoken against this leader? The prophet comes up and says, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like as if sheep, they have no shepherd. And that's why Ahab was totally upset with this guy. And he says, see, I told you, he will always say bad things about me. Later on, Ezekiel will prophesy the same thing against Israel's leaders. That Israel would be like sheep without a shepherd. 
And later on in uh, Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 11 to 31, God Himself says, I myself will come and search for my sheep and seek them out. Why? Because the leaders they have appointed, all of them have not been good shepherds. He says, I myself will do this. And he goes on in verse 23, he says, not any other shepherd, not just when I say I myself, but this shepherd will be a David. It will be, I will establish one shepherd over them and he shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, if you know your prophecy and Israel would know their prophecy, Matthew is writing this to say, look, Jesus is looking out to the multitudes and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. Just before that, a few verses before in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, do you remember the record of the blind man calling out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy upon me. And then later on, Matthew then records immediately, sheep without a shepherd. Ezekiel's prophecy would come to mind. God will set a shepherd over them and it will be my servant David. And this will be the son of David. Once again, Matthew's Christological intent. Jesus is the son of David. He is the Messiah. And if God says, I will be that shepherd, then Jesus is that shepherd. Jesus is also God. And if you remember physical conditions as they are weary and they are scattered, they will also reveal a spiritual reality. They are weary, they are scattered, they are helpless, they are disenfranchised, marginalized. Why? The consequences of sin. Maybe it was their own sin. Maybe it was the sins of others and of their leaders. But here comes a shepherd who will come to save his people from their sins. And so just one line, one phrase, and it's packed in there. Because the people of the kingdom would have known their prophecies and would have known their scriptures and they would know that Matthew was talking about Jesus. At this point, we must ask ourselves a question as we look at this. Are we like our king? How much are we like our king? What do we see? Right? Jesus saw the multitudes and he was moved with compassion. What do we see? And are we moved by what we see? In our last teaching, in session number 72, we concluded that when we are alive, if we are alive, our eyes will be opened to see, right? Our eyes will not be closed. And when we see, we will respond in a correct manner. Do we see people weary and scattered? Do we see people in need of a good shepherd? Do we see people in need of the good news of the kingdom, in need of a good king to rule and to reign over them? And I can tell you the answer is yes. But the next question must be asked, are we moved with compassion by what we see? If we have been made aware, do we remain apathetic? Does it upset you enough, deep enough within you to do something, to say something, to help someone, to point the way? I want you to ponder this as we go through the rest of this teaching. And if we are seeing something, if something is stirring within us, what is the king asking us to do? Perhaps there could be a kingdom assignment within what we see and the multitudes that we come into contact with. But would we be moved with compassion? Would we be moved by the king and his kingdom? Matthew chapter 9, verse 37. Then Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, 
but the laborers are few. After he sees the multitudes, he's moved with compassion. And he looks at them like sheep without shepherd. He looks at his disciples and he declares this one line that we are so familiar with. The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Notice the change of illustration. It moves from flock to fields. It moves from shepherd to harvest. And I believe it's deliberate down here. Why? One shepherd can look after a flock, but if you want to bring in the harvest, it needs a lot more people. It needs a lot more workers. Up to this point, Jesus had already declared and He had already demonstrated that time has come for delegation. Why? Because the messianic movement and ministry is not about maintenance, but about multiplication. You move from one shepherd to many workers. You're moving from sheep to a harvest. We cannot do it with one person. You can't even add one more with two persons, add three persons. We need to multiply. And that's why there's this change of an illustration. There is work to be done, works ahead, and we need workers. Amen? The picture now changes to a harvest. I know when we look at this harvest, we talk about reaping, of a sowing and then reaping. But as you look at the word harvest... There are numerical implications, but there are also eschatological overtones. If you look at the fields, numerical, so many down there. So you're looking at numbers, but it's not just about numbers. The harvest, this one word harvest, is eschatological. There's a picture of the end times, the end of the age that is there. Later on, when we get to Matthew chapter 13, if you remember the parable of the wheat and of the tares. Jesus shares this parable about the kingdom. He says that in the kingdom, there are wheat and there are tears. Later on, he explains the symbolism and the meaning of each of these items. He says the field is the world. The harvest is the end of the age. That's interesting, isn't it? We often think that the harvest is the people. He says, no, no, the harvest is the end of the age. So it's not just about the people. It is about the end of the age. Let's cross-reference another one. In John chapter 4, verse 35, after he has an encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well, the disciples come and engage him, right? And say, oh, you know, do you have nothing to eat and so on? He says, I do the will of my Father. And then he turns to them in verse 35, he says this, Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes. In other words, what do you see? <laughs> Open your eyes, see. Lift up your eyes. Behold, and look, see. Look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. It's not just about the ripeness of the people, it is also the ripeness of the time. Friends, we are not waiting for the last days. We are in the last days. You know, many times we keep thinking, the time of Jesus 2,000 years ago. No, when Jesus came, He ushered in the end times. Every day after Jesus is the end times. We've been in the end times for the last 2,000 years, and we are in the ender of the end times than they ever were. We are in the last of the last days than they ever were. 
We are much closer to it. And so if Jesus at that point can say, you know, it's already here. The end of the age is here. And there will be the end, the end of the age when the angels will come and they will do the reaping. But right now, it is right. The time is right. The time is short. There's an urgency. If 100 people were needed to work the fields, then we need 10,000 or 20,000 today. We need a multiplication of workers. It's not one plus one. It is a multiplication that we need. And that's why you, don't, you shouldn't miss this contrast. The harvest is plentiful. The numbers are there, but the time is running out. But the workers are few. Let's look at some numbers. I was trying to check what would be the population in AD 1, let's say around there, in the time of Jesus. Nobody really knows, huh? Some say it's about 150 million. Some say 200 million. Some say 300 million. I mean, that's a, that's a very big range. Roman Empire, they estimated to be about, a, about 60 million people. At the time of Jesus in Judea, maybe 5 million people. So let's say Jesus was called to the people in Judea. One Jesus to 5 million uh, is a lot of people. Uh. Amen. Even if you add in 12 disciples uh, to 5 million, uh, it's still a lot of people. After that, that's why in, on the day of Pentecost, 120 and then 3,000 and 8,000, and they had to reach the rest. But that was 2,000 years ago. How has the population of the world increased? It was fairly flat. Somewhere around the 1500s, it started to escalate and there's this population boom and extension of life and all that. And now in 80, 2018, we're about 7 billion. There's 7,000 million. I said, wow, that's quite a lot around the entire world. What's the percentage of Christians? Well, according to some sources, it says that 33% are Christians. I say, wow, that's 2.3 billion Christians. That's a good number. 33, that means one-third, you know. One-third means the ratio is one to two. It's easy, man. You just reach two persons huh, and Jesus can come already. Amen? So does it mean, what, what do you mean? Then this line doesn't, doesn't apply anymore. What do you mean by the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few? We've got so many Christians. That should be good news, isn't it? Are the workers still few? Yes. But why are the workers few? We have this number, we have the statistics to back us up. But the statistics are so one thing, but the reality is so far from it. Why? We have to ask ourselves, who are the laborers? Who are the laborers? Who are these workers that Jesus is talking about? You've got to look in the Scriptures for us to find the answer. Who did He talk to? He spoke to disciples. He looked at His disciples and He said, the workers are few. He was addressing his disciples. A few verses down in Matthew chapter 10, verse 10. In sending out later, Jesus used the same term. For a worker, a laborer, is worthy of his food. Let me submit to you very simply. Workers must first be disciples. Disciples are then to be workers. Simple equation. Workers must first be disciples, and disciples must then be workers. You see, in the same way Paul referred to those who worked with him, fellow workers of the kingdom. 
He told Timothy, you present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. This shows us something down here. Jesus did not say, hey, anyone want to join me and help my come? I just hire you. I just pay you. He didn't hire workers from the outside. He knew he had to raise disciples from within who would then become his workers. Why? Simply, you cannot do the work of the king if you do not know the king. You can't do the work of the king if you do not understand the ways of his kingdom. This is so straightforward, is it not? You cannot just hire someone and say, okay, this is my marketing plan. Can you just roll this out for me? This is the program of of the kingdom. Can you just execute this for me? It does not work. You need disciples of the king. You need people of the kingdom to run the things of the kingdom. Let me give you an example that's so personal. We are in our Keeper's Awakening. We are in our fourth year, the first three years. I know I've just been going out and just declaring and people have just come alongside and encouraged me along the way. But after three years, I've shared with some of my brothers and my sisters, it's growing beyond me. It's growing beyond me after three years. I I cannot continue the way I do this. It's not possible. But it's not as straightforward as deploying someone who just comes to me and say, Wow, I keep us awakening. I listen to the message. Oh, brother, it resonates with me. It doesn't work. Do you know I've got so many people come and tell me, It resonates with me. But until they, they begin to, to journey with me, to hear more, uh, it takes time to internalize the declaration, right? The teaching. Just now, Reuben was sharing with you. You can come for one, two, three, four awakening events and you slowly get it. You slowly get it because there are different levels that you are learning and you're listening and you're observing. Not only that, those who have come alongside, they start to learn, they start to observe. There's a demonstration and there's a training. Right? We're only beginning to bring people out to say, okay, I declare this. Now you share your story. What does it mean to when our keepers? So there's a declaration, there's a demonstration. And now as we approach this fourth year and our fourth anniversary, I believe that our Keeper's Awakening is coming to a threshold where delegation and tasking is going to take place. We need more people to declare this and more people to be helping because people will need mentoring, people will need aligning. And I can tell you, one person cannot do it. Now, I'm only using the example of a small little ministry called Akipa's Awakening. Can you imagine Jesus where He came as the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world? It's a very different picture. It's not just hiring workers. It's about raising disciples. And there is work to be done. There are works ahead, lots of work. We need disciples. We need workers. What's the problem? Too many are still asleep. Too many are still asleep. You know, sadly, 2.3 billion Christians, they do not equal to 2.3 believers who consider themselves as disciples of Jesus Christ. You see, by whatever I'm sharing with you, if you agree with me, that a worker is a disciple, a disciple is a worker. The reason why we have few workers is because we have few Christians who consider themselves as disciples of Jesus Christ. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you will be a worker that will be sent out into the harvest. 
In Acts chapter 11, verse 26, we know this, that in Antioch, the believers were disciples first. Before they were called or they were labeled, it was a, it was a negative label. They were called them, these are the ones belonging to Christ. And so they came up with this title, Christians. It was a bad term. It was almost like a swear word, these Christians. Right? Because they belonged to the Christ. And they were following the Christ. But they were believers and disciples first. And they earned the right to be called or to be labeled or be put down as Christians. Today in the church of Jesus Christ, we are called Christians first. And then we hope and pray that this will become disciples of Jesus Christ. Can you see it's so upside down today? And so we can have Christians in name, but when you say, are you a disciple? They they're not put up their hands. And if we don't have disciples, then we don't have workers. And the harvest is plentiful and the workers remain few. Because we have few disciples, that means we have few workers. And so I ask you, my friends, are you a worker of the kingdom? Before you can answer that, the next question must come. Are you a disciple? And as I declare this message, I want you to agree with me. Our keepers needs to be awakened before he can be aligned so that he can be assigned. That's our prayer, right? That's our desire. Otherwise, there will be a big dilemma and this problem that we will continue to have. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And so we ask ourselves, so how? What to do? Thankfully, Jesus does not leave us in a lurch. He gives us the solution in the very next verse. He says, therefore, pray. Pray. Now, this is like a standard answer, isn't it? Uh, You tell people, they say, pray, Lord. I mean, well, it's biblical. Jesus said, pray. So how? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. What should we do, Lord? He said, pray, Lord. Pray. He said, pray. He didn't say plan programs and get people to participate. He said, pray. And we're not even praying for participation in the programs or for, for numbers or, or for attendance and confession time. I mean, whenever we organize something, whenever we, we offer an initiative, the first thing is, I hope more people will come, correct? Why? Because we want to do good. We want to help people. We know that we need to train people. And it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But my focus seems more on the numbers and the participation when it should be more on what? Prayer. It has to be on prayer. And this word prayer is about petitioning, appealing, beseeching to the Lord of the harvest, not for more church members, but for more workers and for more disciples. The tense of this verb is interesting. It's a middle voice, which means it's a desperate cry. It's a lack. It's a, it's a help. You better come through, Lord. We're praying. You, you better have the disciples and the, and the workers. Otherwise, there's nothing we can do. It's beyond us. You can sign up for our awakening event. This hall can be full with Kingdom 101 participants. But unless the Lord raises disciples and sends out workers, we are just a numbers game. That's how desperate we need to be. He says, pray. Why? Because we can't do this. Only the Lord of Harvest can do this. He knows where the needs are. He knows how to awaken and keep us. I can't awaken anyone. I got to do my part and, and, and trust that He will mourn and do His part. He knows how to awaken and our keepers, how to align and our keepers, and how to assign and our keepers. He knows who He has to send out and He knows what it takes for one to be sent. 
And so our prayer is to say, Lord of the harvest, will you send out? Will you send out your workers, send out your disciples, send out your laborers? That's what our prayer should be. I think our KPI Kingdom Prayer Initiative will take a change in, in focus from now on. We will say, Lord, send out these guys, man. Send them out. The word send out is interesting. The Greek is ekbalo. Ekbalo. Two words. Ek means out. Balo means to throw. In other words, to throw out, to drive out, to, to push out, to thrust out. Can you imagine the intensity of the prayer? The urgency of the prayer. It's not, Lord, uh, will you have more disciples attend discipleship class? No. Lord, will you push this guy out? Lord, will you thrust this guy out? There's an urgent necessity. Very different. We are still hoping for people to come in. God wants to throw them out. Let me show you how intense this is. Matthew uses Ekbalo in two other situations, and we've already gone through this in Matthew chapter 8 and in chapter 9 in all our teachings. The first one we see in Matthew chapter 8, verse 31. The demons begged him, saying, If you Ekbalo us out, if you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And so who does Jesus cast out? Demons. Can you see the urgency? Can you see the intensity? Okay, it's a driving out of demons. It's the same that we're saying, Lord, will you drive the disciples out? The second use is the little girl that died and Jesus comes and says, no, she's just sleeping. And they ridiculed him. They laughed at him and said, oh, don't, don't joke, lah, Jesus. I mean, come on, man. They did not believe they were skeptical. They were cynical. But when the crowd was put outside, Ekbalo, Jesus didn't open and say, excuse me, will you go out? No, he says, get out. Cast them out. Drive them out. Why? There's unbelief. There's no faith. There's cynicism. There's skepticism. Out you go. Ekbalo. That's how strong this word is. And then he went in and took the girl by the hand and the girl arose. Are you getting a picture of this? In the same way Jesus casts out demons and people with unbelief, we are to pray for Jesus to thrust out disciples. Violent. Violent. I hope you're ready to be ekbalot. <laughs> Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, we know this verse. But do you know, from the time this verse was quoted to the time of the Holy Spirit falling upon the disciples and then the first 3,000 that came into the church and the community, it will be another few more chapters, eight chapters to be precise, from Acts 1.8 to Acts 8.1. Where you have this guy, Saul, we know him as Paul, right? Saul was consenting to the death of Stephen. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. 
In verse 4, then it records, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Eight chapters. Eight chapters. Jesus gave the instruction, but it takes eight chapters and years later, and God says, excuse me, shouldn't you be going out? Excuse me, shouldn't you, don't you have work to do? And then suddenly persecution comes, and then they are thrown out, scattered out, and then they preach the word. Isn't that interesting? The church was dispersed, scattered, except the apostles. Funny, huh? The apostles are the ones who are sent, but they were not sent. They stayed in Jerusalem. But the rest who had to be sent out were pushed out. See, the word scatter just means to disperse or to sow a seed. So if you are a sower, you, you, how do you sow a seed? You don't just plant small, small, right? You hold one bunch and you throw. You just throw the seeds out. That's how you do it. Now, who is the one who sows the seed? Matthew chapter 13 again. Parable of the wheat and tares. He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Friends, do you know what is the good seed? I won't be surprised if you answer me. The seed is the word of the kingdom. I said, wow, you know your Bible. Only problem is wrong parable. That parable is the parable of the soils and the sower, the four grounds where the seed is the word of the kingdom. By the time it comes to the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus says, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. Are you surprised? Jesus doesn't sow the word here anymore. Jesus sows the sons of the kingdom. The sons of the kingdom are supposed to be thrust out. We, the church, presumably sons and daughters of the kingdom, we must be scattered before we can reach the scattered. And the church in Jerusalem, if God needs to use persecution to get the church out of the church, He will. And He did. I pray that we don't have to wait for persecution for us to wake up our ideas, for us to be scattered. God can use challenges in our lives to, to wake us up, to awaken us, to realign us so that we will come into the things of the kingdom and begin to understand things. He can use circumstances in our lives, in our churches, in our relationships to get us up and going. And then He pushes us out. Because when things are too good, too comfortable, we fall asleep. God can thrust us out or we can be aware and wise to the signs of the times and we can respond accordingly. My question is, what do you see and what does it take to move you? Do you want to know who else was egbalot in Matthew? I'll give you two other verses. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, this is the story about the centurion and his servant. And right at the end of the story, Jesus heals the servant but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out. Egbalo. The sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now remember, this is the one line that Jesus was talking about, and he spoke this in response to the centurion's great faith that he didn't see in Israel. And in this teaching, I shared with you that great faith is not just believing for things to get things we want. Great faith results in great faithfulness. 
And as your faithfulness increases, you begin to be faithful in the assignments of the kingdom. And the sons of the kingdom need to be thrust out, to be sent out. But if we are not faithful in the things that God gives to us, we stand accountable. These are the words of Jesus. I'm not making this up. We are reading this, and I hope you study this for yourself. In Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the talents, verse 30, says, Cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. Ekbalo, this guy. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, what did he do? Unprofitable. In other words, he did not return anything. He couldn't give account. He had the opportunity. He had the resources, just like the other two. But he was unprofitable. And Jesus says this, Ekbalo, this guy. Cast this guy out. And so unfaithful, unprofitable sons and servants of the kingdom are cast out. I know you don't like to hear this. I know to preach this is dangerous. It's offensive. But we are doing a study on Matthew, yes? We are reading the scripture. And we want scripture to interpret scripture for us. And so we have a choice. Do you prefer to be thrust out on kingdom assignment? or to be cast out of, you, you fill in the blanks. Because the same word is used, ekbalo. Are you, would you be willing, ready now to say, Lord, will you ekbalo me out into the harvest? Kick me out, push me out into the harvest. It's better into the harvest than somewhere else later on. Are you willing to do that? I pray that that would be your prayer and that would be your desire. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And the very next verse, there's no chapters, you know, in the original writing and recording. The very next verse, and when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Pray, beseech, beg the Lord of the harvest. Who is this Lord of the harvest? We always say, God, you're the Lord of the harvest. But in the very next verse, who is the one sending disciples out? Jesus. So Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. Well, God is the Lord of the harvest. Well, guess what? Jesus is God. You see, this is what Matthew is trying to share with us. Jesus has the authority. The Father gives to the Son to say, now you just send him out. Push them out. You know, you've already prayed, so send them out. Jesus is the one. Who's the commander of the Lord's army? Jesus. Jesus gets to task His disciples. He gets to assign. He gets to send people out. Jesus is the one. The question is, who are the workers now? Who are these answers to this prayer? The disciples. The disciples were the answers to the prayer one verse earlier. That's how fast God answers in one verse. Pray the Lord of the harvest. Next verse, Jesus sends them out. You want a fast answer to prayer? Uh, you pray this. Sure answer one. Pao jia. Guaranteed. One verse. You get ready. I hope you're seeing this. My dear friends, do you know you are the answer to the prayer for Jesus to thrust out workers into the harvest? Do you know that you are the answer 
to someone's prayer for help. You are the answer to someone's prayer to hear the good news of the kingdom. And we have to learn how to see our kingdom assignments not as merely activities to participate in, but answers to someone's prayer. Would you say amen? Right? You see, if, if all you are doing in church is this activity, I think you are missing the point. If you are just being engaged in something just to pass your time because you've got nothing else better to do, you're missing the point. I'm not saying that it will not bless someone. I'm not saying it will not touch or advantages to someone. Sometimes you can bless someone without you even knowing it. Amen? But if you begin to see that your, your assignment impacts someone, influences someone, that perhaps somewhere along that line, this guy has been praying, this lady has been praying, and God has sent you. It's very different. It's very different. If you see the picture of this guy who needs salvation, who needs deliverance, who needs to be set free, and you are the one sent in on a rescue mission, you will bear through the trouble. You will go through the difficulty. And you will save this guy with the name of Jesus. You don't save, right? You know Jesus is the one who saves. But if you're just doing church, you're missing a big picture, my dear friends. A big picture. See, the kingdom of God is always about people. We just celebrated Good Friday. Jesus didn't die for us to have programs. Jesus died for people. And we've got to remember that. Because He is that shepherd who laid down His life for His sheep. Today we are His agents. We are His workers. We are His ambassadors. But you see, you can't understand that if you do not first say, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. What He did, I want to do. Where He sends, I will go. Our kingdom assignments are not activities to participate in, but answers to prayer. Friends, there, there are works ahead. I don't know if you realize this, but there's a lot of work to be done. And it's going to take more than a few of us to say, yeah, okay, you know, let's rally together. It's going to take a lot of us. Everyone is needed. It's not just about the declaration and teaching. That's nice. It's not even just about the demonstration and training where, you know, we go through the paces. That's good. There comes a time where we will reach this point is a delegation and a tasking. And I say that this is where we fall short. This is where suddenly our hands come down. You know, suddenly we, we, we slink back in our chair and we just shirk and we say, not me, Lord, here am I, send him or send her. I've shared this picture before with some of you. I've shared it with the students at Tongling Bible School. And I was driving along the roads last year and I started to see a lot of these signs, works ahead, works ahead. Everywhere I went, I, I see works ahead. I pray that after this message and this teaching, when you drive and you walk, uh, this will haunt you. <laughs> that you will never miss this picture ever again. Okay? I want you to see this. Because I pray that what the Lord allows us to see, we will never unsee. It will just be a grim reminder for us. There are works ahead. Just round the bend, round the other bend. There's works ready, laid up for each and every one of us. How can we keep saying, I don't know my kingdom assignment. I don't have, you know, nothing for me to do. Plenty for us to do. 
Some will be up in the foreground, some will be in the background, some will be at the side. It's okay. But we need all hands. We need all the workers in the field because the time is short. The harvest is plentiful. It's ripe. It's the end of the age. It's coming. There's a lot of work and God is raising His people to be part of this workforce. After I shared this with the, with the Tongling students, and you know, Tongling is a Bible school, one day I was driving, and I took this picture. I had to snap this. Uh, my car wasn't moving, so it's okay. I didn't commit any, any uh, traffic violation. I had to snap this picture because it was placed directly under the sign, end of school zone. <laughs> Don't you think that's prophetic? Their work said it's end of school zone. Now, we know what this means. It just means that uh, uh, we can drive a little bit faster now. There are no students crossing the road. But if you read it a little bit differently, I was telling the Bible school students, look guys, this teaching is good, you know. You can have 20 modules, you say amen, you can cry your eyes out, you can worship the Lord, you feel on a mountain high, on a mountain top. But when you graduate, it's end of school. (laughs) And what comes after end of school? Works ahead. And the only way you can get out of works ahead is you apply for another school, you see. And this is our problem in the church today. We're going from school to school, seminar to seminar, conference to conference, course to course, because we don't want the works ahead. We keep saying we're not ready. We keep saying we cannot do this. We keep saying we're too busy. We, keep, we, we come up with all kinds of things. We love the declaration and teaching. We'll say amen. We love the demonstration and training, you know. We say, wow, so good. You know, I lay on someone, someone, someone was healed, you know. Huh? Wow, so good. You know, I pray for someone. But when it comes to delegation and tasking, we got to say, yes, Lord, here I am. I'm ready. I'm ready. Delegate all the authority, Lord. Give me all the power, Lord, right? And that's why he said in Matthew chapter 28 at the end, he says, all power is mine now. And I now give it to you. Go. You go into the nations. You make disciples. You heal the sick. You cast out the demons. You let the lame walk. You open blind eyes. Raise the dead. I'm praying, okay, Lord, help me. Give me bonus. If there's an opportunity for me to do that, let me not shrink back. I was talking to a pastor who goes into the mission fields and he says, how do I preach to this guy to, to encourage this group of people? When he says, how many of you have raised the dead? Ten of them raised up their hands. And he was like, who am I to be teaching these guys? You know, and, and yet we are in the body of Christ, right? Where we have uh, uh, the Word within us, we're able to teach them and help them and edify them. And where they have the experience on the field, they encourage us to believe that it can be done. It's not just a Bible story. Jesus delegates the authority and the power to each and every one of us. We can say amen to that. But He also wants to task and assign every one of us. Would you say amen also? Are you ready to receive that? Because if you're ready or not, I'm going to pray, Lord, send out the laborers. Oh Lord, eggballo them! And do what you need. Help us, empower us, prepare us for what is needful. And so friends, after nine chapters of Matthew, after nine chapters, I think we're ready for a message like this, don't you think? Yeah? Let me ask you again, what do you see? Are you moved by what you see? And I want to pray that 
I want to ask God to show you the needs of the people around you. And I want to ask God to break your heart. Is that okay? I want to ask God to to break your heart in the same way it broke Jesus' heart. Because if there's no love and if there's no compassion, no go. It, It doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. It's not the kingdom. You will just be checking your list and just, you know, uh, 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 reporting, I did this and I went there. It doesn't happen that way. With love and compassion, ask God to show you the needs of the people around you and to break your heart. The harvest is plentiful, but you know the workers are few. Let me remind you, the messianic movement, the messianic ministry is not about maintenance. Friends, don't maintain. We've got to multiply. We've got to multiply. Huh? We need more people. We need the workers. We need the disciples to get out there. We need these to say, yes, I will follow Jesus and I will serve Jesus. I want you to pray. Pray that you'll be willing. Pray that you'll be ready. That when God thrusts you and pushes you out, you will go where He will send you to. Once again, kingdom assignments are not activities to participate in. They are answers to prayer. And I remind you, someone out there is crying for help. Someone out there is crying for deliverance, for salvation, for love, for acceptance, for restoration. Everything that the cross has secured, this person needs to know. You may be the one Jesus is delegating and tasking. Will you accept? And will you go? There works ahead. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, Lord. Each time, Lord, we study your word, is just presented so clearly. Lord, I pray, give us eyes to see. Once again, Lord, give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church today. And Lord, touch our hearts, Lord. If our hearts have been hardened, if our hearts have been cold towards the things and towards people around us, Lord, will you touch our hearts once more? The promise is there for all of us. You remove the heart of stone. You put in the heart of flesh. And so I pray, may we not be hardened by our own situations, our own disappointments, dis- discouragements, and our hurts. Heal us first, O oh Lord. Restore us first and put in a heart of flesh that will beat for the kingdom, that would break for the people around us so that we will be like Jesus, our King, moved with compassion. And we thank you, Lord, that you will, you will push us out. You will throw us out. You will thrust us out. As violently as that term suggests, yet we know you are gracious. You're always so gracious. But when you need to do it, you will do it. And you will still add grace and give grace to us when you do it. And so, Lord, will you prepare us? Will you help us? And will you be with us when you push us out? You say you'll never forsake us. You will always be with us. And you will empower us to do what needs to be done. And so I thank you, Lord, as you have declared as you have demonstrated and now you delegate as you have taught and as you have trained will you now task us and we willingly we receive this and we obey you in jesus name we pray amen